Okay, what's up everyone? Welcome to Let's Talk Harper Public School. Let's Talk Harper Public Schools is a talk show designed to highlight the schools in Harper, Connecticut. We discuss our beautiful and capable students as well as our staff, families, and partners. Each show we invite a guest on to talk about who they are, what their relationship is to our schools, and successes and challenges that they face. I am your host, Mr. Rich. I have been a resident, student, teacher, principal, and now executive director, and I will be your guide on this conversational journey. With that said, let's get to our guest. His name is Justin Taylor, and he is the Assistant Director of Educational Initiatives and Innovation. Doesn't that sound fancy? Welcome, Justin. How are you today? Thanks, Tyrone. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. So you got this very interesting um, title, Assistant Director of Educational Initiatives and Innovation. It sounds pretty important, especially during today's time. So please explain to us what that is. What does that title mean and what do you do? <laughs> so on the one hand, I think it's the least desirable title because no one likes educational initiatives and that it's in my title. Um, but my, my work is primarily, and as it's been defined over the last like two years, is primarily around high school redesign, particularly at our comprehensive high schools, as well as the Kinsella campus. Um, I work on our portrait of a graduate, and I work on our instructional vision. So those are the three buckets of work. Um, and, and in general, I support the work of the Barr Foundation, which is a, has been a significant funder of Harvard Public Schools, and it's a commitment to post-secondary success. Okay. All that you just, we won't get into all that. Portrait of a graduate, instructional vision, bar foundation, all these little things you're throwing out at us. We're gonna try to figure out what they really mean in layman's terms. Uh, but first up, where are you from, man? How'd you end up in Harvard? So where are you born? Give us some background. So I was born and bred in Middletown, Connecticut. I uh, grew up and went to Middletown Public Schools, graduated from Middletown High School, and um, and then went off to college in New York, uh, spent a little time down in Washington, DC, thought I wanted to work on Capitol Hill, spent uh, just under a year there before realizing I didn't wanna do that. Came back to Connecticut where I went to law school and then found my way into Hartford in law school. I, I went to the University of Connecticut School of Law in the West End and fell in love with the community and, um, and then decided to, to become a teacher and join Teach for America. Hold up. Stop, stop, stop. That's my whole life story, Tyrone. Is that not what you wanted? <laughs> yes, but we need to, we need, we got to bring it back, man. You went real quick. New York Law School, all, all Capitol Hill. Whoa. Okay, let's go back. Elementary school. <laughs> but elementary. Oh, you want to start real far back. Elementary okay. school. So you got elementary, middle, high school. Think about that time. Yep. What, who was your favorite teacher from that moment in time? All right. So my, I, I had good experiences in elementary school and in high school. My middle school experience um, was less than desirable, which I think is true for many students. But my favorite teacher in high school was um, Mr. Bransfield. He was my introduction to American politics teacher. I had him in 11th grade. Um, during the, or 10th grade, during the 2000 election, like the very tight election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Yep. And I had already had an interest in politics, particularly American government. And I took this course and, um, at, and I just took it at the right time. And the, you know, the opportunities kind of like follow the news as it was unfolding around the election, I found really captivating. And I thought he did a really excellent job of just 
um, inspiring within me a desire to pay attention to politics and really making history come to life. So absolutely by far my favorite teacher, um, even if we were to like extend the timeline out to, to college or law school, he, he's still my favorite teacher. And obviously this was your favorite subject. What was it you said that was intro to American politics? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And so that was your favorite subject of all subjects. Not only did it become my favorite subject, but it's what I decided to go to college to pursue. So I, I majored in uh, American politics in, in college because of that class. Okay. So let's, let's, let's go there now, right? So that, that part, the college to Capitol Hill part. Tell me a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went to Vassar College in upstate New York, Poughkeepsie, uh, though people who live in upstate New York would say that's not upstate New York, but Poughkeepsie. And um, I, I spent obviously four years there. There was an opportunity for me in my junior year to study away or study abroad. I chose to study away because I was super interested in American government and, and thought that I might want to spend some time in DC long term um, and work on Capitol Hill as a staffer. So I had the opportunity to, to explore that through a, um, an internship in Washington, D.C. for one semester, a little bit over one semester. Okay, so who was president at that time and what did you do? All right. So now we have to date myself. But this was <laughs> 2000 and, uh, 2005. Um, it was 2005. So this is still the Bush administration. Okay. And I uh, worked, but I worked for Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro here from Connecticut, okay. and I was um, a congressional intern. So my responsibilities varied. It's a lot of constituent casework. So if someone calls the office and has some sort of problem, you're responding to their problem. I also gave tours of the United States Capitol building. I was very <laughs> ill-equipped to give these tours. I did not know <laughs> most of the information I should have known. Um, and, and then you did a lot of like writing of letters. So when people write in um, and have like an issue of concern, you oftentimes draft these like policy letters and they go through multiple channels before they're sent out. Um, and so in that work, I got a real taste for what it meant to be on Capitol Hill and learned pretty quickly that I was not interested. Not interested. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So favorite subject, went down there, tried it out. Then what happened? Well, I, uh, I went back to, to college for my fourth year and, and graduated. And in that summer between my third and fourth year, I discovered this program called Summer Bridge New Haven. Okay. And it's a, it's a program in, um, in New Haven. It's for New Haven public students, but public school students, but it is housed at the Hopkins School campus. It's very prestigious, very fine um, private school. And in, in working through that program, I fell in love with teaching. Um, which is not an interest or passion that I had discovered before. So I went back to, um, to college thinking, well, maybe I don't want to pursue politics, but I'm suddenly interested in teaching. Um, I took a class in issues in er, contemporary issues in urban education and really fell in love with urban education and issues of educational equity and inequity. And so at that moment, I had decided I wanted to be a lawyer um, and that I would want to like combat issues of educational inequity through systemic policy reform and law school. Wow. So still kind of dealing in courtrooms. Okay. So lawyer now over teacher. So you kind of got the teacher thing, but then said, okay, I'd rather go the lawyer route. Cause I can make it more of a change um, in that role. Yeah. I think that I was thinking about systems level reform rather than yeah. like classroom yeah. impact. Exactly. All right. So, 
you, you still, uh, what happened? <laughs> what happened next? <laughs> so, so I, I did just that. I graduated from college. Um, I returned to work at Summerbridge the next summer between the uh, end of my college career and the beginning of my law school career and still found myself really enjoying that experience. Um, and I went to law school and in law school, I continued tutoring students in New Haven in my first year of law school um, and found that as much as I was enjoying parts of my law school experience, I was still kind of holding on to this dream of continuing to work with students in some capacity. Um, I, I then had the opportunity to work for a nonprofit organization in, in Hartford, which works closely with students who are abused and neglected and in special ed or the juvenile justice system. Yeah. Um, and I also had the opportunity between my second, between my first and second year of law school to work on building curriculum for what was then the Long Government Academy at Hartford Public High School. And you are in your early 20s at this point, correct? That's right. Yeah, 21, 22. And you are doing amazing, amazing for a 21, 22-year-old. Where's the PlayStation? Where's the, where's the video games? Where's the partying? Where's the hanging out? My goodness, you are knocking it out at such a young age. Yeah, I maybe just, that's because I'm just boring. I don't know. <laughs> I, I yeah. So I, I found this passion really early on, and I, I felt you know privileged to know like kind of what I wanted to do. But it did take me a while to figure out like what exactly I wanted to do. Right? Education, and educational equity was important to me early on. Don't don't get me wrong, right? Being ambitious at a young age and taking care of stuff and getting things done and focusing on your career is not a problem at. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, it's not as a parent of a 20-something-year-old. I, I, I'm, I'm sure your parents were very proud of you at that time um, and continue to be proud. So keep going, man. Keep going. You, you, you ended up teaching somehow. I did. Yeah. So here's what happened. I'm in my third year of law school. And the way that law school works is once you get to like your second year, you kind of have a path that you've created for yourself. And a lot of people that I surrounded myself with wanted to go to like the corporate world. And so they were lining up jobs between their second and third year of law school. I knew I had no interest in the corporate world, didn't see myself as an associate in a big firm, um, wanted to work in the nonprofit sector. And so I was working, I was sitting down with my mentor at the time and sort of trying to figure out what my path forward was. This was now during my third and final year of law school. And I proposed to her a bunch of different kinds of ideas for jobs that I would want. And she looked at me and said, it really feels like you wanna be a teacher and not a lawyer. Um, and I think in the back of the mi my mind, I had known that for some time at this point, but wasn't really willing to commit to, to saying it out loud because I had just spent three years of my life in law school. And so um, I came to terms with that realization. And, and luckily one of my best friends in law school happened to be a teacher before she transitioned to um, becoming a lawyer. And so I, I spent some time talking to her and asking what that path to the classroom would look like. And that's when I discovered an organization called Teach for America. TFA, you know, I, did I know? I must have known that you went through TFA. Um, Teach for America, tell us what, what, it, what is it? What is it? Yeah, so, so TFA is a program typically for students who are, have just graduated from college, but it's not only for those <laughs> students. And uh, these are students who want to commit for at least two years to teach in primarily urban or rural um, public schools. I was very interested in staying in Connecticut. I had spent, you know, my entire childhood in Connecticut, had spent law school in Connecticut, knew the 
educational achievement gap in Connecticut was the largest uh, in the entire country. Wanted to do my work here in Connecticut, wanted to do it really uh, in New Haven, um, but didn't get a position in New Haven, got a job in Hartford and uh, TFA sort of helped guide me through the certification process, made sure that I could be credentialed and uh, found me my first job at Buckley High School where I stayed for 10 years. And that's, that's awesome because, you know, I'm, I'm glad you made that point about TFA where you have to stay committed for at least two years. And that's, you know, it's a benefit to get young people who are hungry, who are content driven and can come and make an impact, but it's not good for a district if they're not gonna stay. Um, yep. Because we're in a human relations kind of business and we build relationships and, you know, people need, we need consistency in our buildings to mesh with our students as well as with our staff. So 10 years, 10 years at Buckley, right? Right. Yep. What did you do at Buckley? So um, when I joined the Buckley staff in 2009, there were two schools in one building. There was the upper school for grades 11 and 12 and the lower school for grades 9 and 10. I was uh, hired in the upper school, so I primarily taught grades 11 and 12 for most of my career as a social studies teacher um, and had the opportunity and real privilege to bring my law background into the classroom. Um, I created a course called Issues in Contemporary Law. And we worked with my students on all sorts of like cutting edge cases around the rights of the criminally accused and constitutional rights. Um, I taught lots of classes, US history, international studies, economics, civics, uh, Western humanities, capstone. Um, But I think my favorite experience was probably the, the times I had outside of the classroom with my students. I was the advisor of the National Honor Society I was the, um, at one point I led the yearbook and I was the um, founder and um, uh, like coach of our, our school's moot court team, which was a real honor um, and privilege. Wow. And so all, at all out of all the teaching experiences, you go back to the times of the extracurricular stuff, the clubs, the organizations, those were most meaningful to you. Why? Well, I, I think that in the work that I did, I saw part of my job as closing opportunity gaps. And, and I, I think the some of the opportunity gaps I was able to close most successfully was through the experiences that I had with students outside of the regular school day. It's not to diminish at all the work that I was able to do with students in the classroom. And I obviously love that. Like I wouldn't have stayed a teacher for 10 years if I didn't. Um, but the, the kinds of like growth that I saw in our moot court team, for example, um, where the where students were coming with very few public speaking skills at the beginning of our time together. And then by the end in April, they were going down to Washington, D.C. and competing against students from across the country and delivering like 12 or 15 minute presentations. Um, like that's compelling that those are skills that students are going to hold on to and they're going to remember that experience. So for me, that was always super meaningful. What how meaningful do you think that is? I mean, for you. Right. But to students. What the students that's participating in those programs, what are they getting out of that? Well, you know, I I think back to some of the opportunities that I've had after students graduate for them to kind of like come back and reflect on their experiences in my classroom or with me as their teacher. And it is without fail the some of the after school experiences that they point to as most memorable and meaningful for their development as as students. So like the National Honor Society, for example, and just building students' commitment to community service and helping those who are in less fortunate positions than they are. Like that mindset, I think, has a real impact on a student's identity and who they end up becoming. Um, And as a 
high school teacher, I really felt really privileged to help them develop the character that they wanted to be as they grew up. Yeah, no, I've, and I found that as well. And to build off of that a little bit, just the relationship that they get to build in those smaller groups and those organizations, and they see themselves as a bigger part of the world, so to speak, than just in school and learning content and taking tests and you know responding to essays and whatnot. But I'm actually out here, still part of my school, but doing the work and learning more and building relationships. And here we got you know Mr. Taylor, who's a teacher here, but now he's with us doing this. And so that's a little bit different um, and seeing their impact like that. I, I just, I, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, we tried that, in, you know, in middle schools when we have our advisory periods or we have our um, student councils and our other organizations. Um, really looking forward to doing some more work in our middle schools around that as we move along. Now at Buckley High School, at one point, I don't know what year it was, but it was right after um, Mario Marrero won, you were actually honored with Teacher of the Year, not only for Buckley High School, but for the entire district. What was that like? Yeah, that was back in 2014. I think okay. I was 25 years old or 26. Um, so that was a great honor. Um, I think in particular, because I worked in a school that had a, a certain reputation um, and uh, it would pain me as uh, my students would describe Buckley High School as the dumping ground. Mm -hmm. um, and it's language that I heard up until I left Buckley in 2019. And I knew that that just wasn't true. I was surrounded by colleagues who were incredibly committed, incredibly talented. I had so many students who I like loved deeply and cared for. Um, and they were just, they were wonderful. And so I, I knew that what the kind of community's perception of Buckley was was not in fact consistent with the reality that I experienced every single day. And I think that being teacher of the year was an honor, like not only for me, but for my colleagues who are doing so much fantastic work and a recognition that great work can happen at Buckley High School. Um, and so it, it is much a, an honor for me as it was for my colleagues who I, I share that recognition with. And so when that was bestowed upon you, you know, you had to tell your family, what did your, what did your parents think about um, you winning that award and your, your friends and your family? Well, it's, it's funny. So my, my um, grandparents uh, did not go to college. They were on my mom's side, they were immigrants from Italy. Um, and, you know, they very much wanted me to be a lawyer. And so when I broke the news that I wasn't planning on being a lawyer and instead being a teacher, um, I, you know, they didn't say it out loud, but I, I knew that there was this sense that, well, why did you spend the last three years in law school? Um, and then they understood because I would talk about it frequently, my passion for teaching and to recognize that not only was I passionate, but others were recognizing me as like a decent teacher was I think affirmation that I had made the right choice. Um, so they were certainly proud. It was, it was a great evening. The picture of me still lives somewhere on the district website as much as I'd love for it to be taken down. Um, but I, it's such a, it's such a great memory. And I had just so many wonderful colleagues um, who showed up that day to celebrate. Now, we have our Teacher of the Year uh, ceremony um, coming up. Our three finalists have already been announced. Um, that's Victoria, Melissa, and Deborah. Um, one of them is from Buckley, right? Mm -hmm. um, what advice do you have for them as they, you know, all this anticipation leads up and they're being interviewed and they got press stuff and they got to go to the whole ceremony and then they get picked. What advice do you have for them about the position? of being teacher of the year for a district? I think it's just be who you are, right? There's a reason why you were selected as teacher of the year and it was because you were authentic and true to yourself. 
And so there's no reason to, to pretend to be someone else. Uh, the fact that you are in that role doesn't, should not change you. Um, it, I don't believe it changed me and I hope my, my colleagues and students would agree. Uh, and I tried as much as possible to be my authentic and, and real self through the process and after the process. Um, in addition to that, take advantage of all of the opportunities that do come from being recognized as teacher of the year in Hartford. You'll have lots of chances to, to do things you otherwise wouldn't and it, it does open some doors and don't prematurely foreclose those opportunities and just lean into them. All right, we'll talk about talk. what you did with those opportunities after being teacher of the year. So we have been speaking with uh, Mr. Justin Taylor from Hartford Public Schools. He is the Assistant Director of Educational Initiatives and Innovation. Always got to read that, make sure I'm saying that right, which is a very fancy title. He just got finished telling us about how he got to be a teacher at Buckley for 10 years. And now he's going to tell us how did he get to this position? Why did, he, why did you leave teaching? Why did you take this on this opportunity? And what is it, what is it that you do every day? Yeah, so I, I always was interested in approaching issues of educational inequity from like a systemic lens. It's the reason that I did policy work. It's the reason yep. I went to law school. And, and I knew that I couldn't do that um, as a teacher. It's a lot harder for me to do that from the confines of my classroom. And at a certain point, the urge and the, the energy toward leading that kind of change sort of got the best of me. And I, I decided I needed to step away from the classroom. So this really exciting opportunity presented itself in 2019 to step into a role as the teacher in residence for student-centered learning. And this was um, work that I had helped to lead at Buckley High School um, through a, the Nellie May grant. The organization gave us a lot of money to pilot student-centered practices. And so I had this chance to step into that role in 2019 and um, I, I took it. It was not great because it required me to transition out of the classroom in the middle of a school year, which is something that I never anticipated nor desired to do. Um, but it also felt like the right professional next move. And that's how I entered the district at the district level. And then once that position um, ended after one year, mm -hmm. um, this other position as the assistant director of educational initiatives and innovation opened up. And who are you under when it comes to this? What, who do, what department do you work out of? So I work in the Office of Academics under Dr. Madeline Negron. All right. Now, what do you do with this fancy title? What are you <laughs> responsible for? Uh, all right. So I, I would describe my role as supporting three distinct, though often overlapping, buckets of work. Um, first is the design or redesign of our comprehensive high schools. Um, that's Buckley, Weaver, and Hartford Public as well as Kinsella, since it's co-located on the Weaver campus. Um, okay. That work requires um, attention to our freshman academy, attention to our career pathways, which are 10 through, 12 10 through 12th grade experiences, and then attention to what we call our alternative pathways or personalized pathways. In addition to that, I support the design and implementation of our district's instructional vision. And then finally, alongside that, our portrait of a graduate. Okay, so let's get to, let's talk a little bit more about the first stuff. You know, the high school initiative stuff. You do you work with Dr. Garcia Blocker or my girl Bassiana at all? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, okay. So Dr. Garcia Blocker and I work very closely together. She's probably my closest colleague in central office in, in terms of um, sharing of work. Yep. So um, she and I have worked since really the inception of the. <laughs> the bar grant um, as supporting post-secondary 
Success Work. She and I have worked together to establish the with larger groups of people. It's not just us leading this work, but um, to establish the core tenants of our freshman academies, like the non-negotiable experiences students will have. The same is true with our 10th through 12th graders in these comprehensive high schools. What are the different career pathways that they're going to have options for choosing? And what are those experiences going to look like? Um, so we've been doing this work for over a year, probably close to 18 months at this point. Okay. And Ms. Farquharson over at um, Hartford High, what, what is some of the stuff that she's doing over there related to your work? So she is the administrator of the Freshman Academy at Hartford High School. Um, we have a dedicated administrator in each of our freshman academies. Nice. So she's been leading that work, um, you know, all of this year as well as uh, previous years. I um, mean, has been a key kind of an instrumental player in support for implementation of the core tenants that we've identified for this year. Now, what does this work really mean for students? Like, what are the, what, what's going to come out of this for students that's going to benefit them? So Lola, um, Dr. Garcia Blocker, Lola yeah. and I often talk about making the comprehensive high schools destinations for students, not dumping grounds as as I experienced them or students perceived them when I was at Buckley, right? Like I never saw Buckley as a dumping ground, but we can't have students perceive their school to be just that. And so we wanna make sure that students are having robust choices in the district to choose either a high performing magnet school or a high performing comprehensive high school. And the data tells us that right now that's not the case. Um, students have very different experiences at magnet schools in our district as compared to comprehensive high schools. And we want to close the gap. Um, and so what that means is creating a freshman academy teaming model where students feel super supported, where there are lots of interventions in place to support students academically, behaviorally, yeah. socially, emotionally. Right? It's really redefining the ninth grade experience and then creating a 10 through 12 pathway that helps them to feel successful. That's pretty cool, man, because I did. I, we have seen over the last few years, right? Harper High was renovated, redone, beautiful building, uh, Weaver just had their grand opening um, last year. And now Buckley is currently being renovated so that the campuses and the resources inside each campus will match those at some of our best magnet schools that we have here in Hartford. So we see the steps we're taking um, foundationally, right, with space. And now we also hearing it from you with the work that you're doing. So you also mentioned um, instructional vision and portrait of graduate. What, what are those two things? So the district's instructional vision is the common definition that we are using to define what we mean by high quality teaching and learning. And it is designed to um, sort of as the bridge from our district model for excellence, the strategic operating plan, which, which guides the district's um, work yep. as a bridge between that document and our portrait of a graduate. And those are the competencies that we want students to demonstrate proficiency in when they graduate. So we want our students as Hartford Public School graduates to know how to be effective team players and skilled communicators and problem solvers um, and informed and engaged citizens, right? These are the, that's the language that we use in the portrait. And the way that we're gonna get there is making sure that all teachers in all classrooms across the district um, have a core set of principles that define high quality teaching for them. I think what's most exciting about the instructional vision is it's a common language that everyone can speak about instruction. Oftentimes we hear language thrown around like, oh, you need to have high expectations and you need to support collaboration and your classroom needs to be student-centered. 
But what does that mean? What does that mean for a first year teacher who is just learning how to learning the craft? What does that mean for a veteran teacher who's not familiar with language around student-centered practices? So now we have a document that defines each of those terms. And our work next is just to support professional learning so that teachers can grow in their craft. Now, what if you have those teachers that already say, well, I'm already being evaluated by the CCT, right? And then that, that's gonna you know, determine whether I'm a great teacher or not. Yeah, I, so I love that question because that's true. That is the evaluation tool. And that's why we were explicit in linking the instructional vision to the evaluation instrument. But we also know um, that the evaluation tool oftentimes isn't serving as a professional learning tool. It's just evaluating teachers. Yep. There's, there's lots, of, um, you know, lots of pushback among teachers around the CCT in general because it's just an evaluation tool. Mm -hmm. I think what we've done here is say, look, we, we are linking this to the CCT so you see how it impacts your evaluation, but we're also recognizing this serves a slightly different purpose. It's going to help lead professional learning and it brings out some of the key themes from the CCT that aren't necessarily explicitly named and say, in Hartford Public Schools, we believe these six practices must happen in all classrooms. And when they do, we have what kind of students? Well, we've designed the document to say, if you have student-centered practices in your classroom, here are the actions you should expect to see in your students Mm -hmm. And all of those actions are tied directly to our portrait of a graduate. So in a truly student-centered environment, you're going to see lots of collaboration between students. You're going to see students who are engaging in academic discourse as skilled communicators. You're going to see students who are using inquiry in order to problem solve. Right? All of that language is tied in either our instructional vision or our portrait of a graduate. Yep. And it's going to prepare kids for success in whatever post-secondary path they pursue, whether that's college or career or a vocation, um, that's, the, that's the objective. So, I mean, obviously now we're going through COVID, so it's, it's, it's been a little bit difficult, right? We gotta stay six feet apart. I mean, we're doing some interesting things with technology and whatnot, but I shouldn't walk into a classroom next year, right? And see that same old lecture style teaching, standing up, talking at students, watching them listen and take notes, having kids raise their hand. There's no way in the world with everything that you're laying out right now that we should see that in any classroom, correct? I'm just, you know. That's very ambitious of you. I, I, <laughs> ideally, we wouldn't see that, right? We, we know what the right. research says, and it says that lecture is the least effective means of teaching students, but that's, it's not that easy, right? So even at Buckley High School, when I was doing the student-centered work, we started small with a, a early adopters and there were like four or five of us. And then over a course of like a five or six year period, we tried to scale up. And now we're thinking about taking those same principles and applying them across the district. Like this is years of work and years of time and energy well, and money. I don't understand. And you, you, you know, I know, but you know, I don't understand how we can take the time, the effort, the energy. We have professional learning on Wednesdays. We sit down with teachers, we sit down with principals, they give the professional learning, and then some people still resort back to that same style that makes them comfortable when we know our students can do it because our students do it on, they collaborate and work with each other on Fortnite all the time, right? So we know they could do it. Why is it so hard for us as the adults 
to adjust to that type of teaching? I think it requires us to be vulnerable and yeah. to acknowledge what we don't know. And that's hard as an administrator in a building who has been successful, maybe really successful as a teacher with different practices coming in and now having to be vulnerable in front of their staff to say, I actually don't have all the answers and I'm here to learn alongside with you. Um, so that, that's difficult work, but I, I think you're right. We, we know that students can do it. And in fact, I think once students get out into the work, working environment, the skills that we've named in the portrait of a graduate is what it takes to be a successful employee in lots of industries, particularly like the high growth industries that we want our students to be in. So we have to give them those experiences, but it takes a lot of professional learning and a lot of time in order to make our staff feel comfortable. Um, I do think that the pandemic has accelerated our timeline pretty significantly. The fact that all of our teachers are now familiar with and comfortable with Google Classroom, that may seem minimal, but that's really significant because at the yes. beginning of the pandemic, we had maybe a third of our staff. Excellent point. There. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, what's the best part of your day, of your job, of your role? What's the best part about it? Um, I So I've, I've really enjoyed the work that I've had the opportunity to do related to our personalized pathways. These are our alternative pathways for students who are over age, undercredited, yep. for whom the traditional high school experience is just not working. Um, and I think that I enjoy that work the most because it's allowed me to be the most innovative. And we've taken what the traditional high school structure looks like and we've completely dismantled it. And we've redefined when school starts, when it ends, how long a period is, the kinds of curriculum that students are using, the ways that they're earning credit, opportunities for work-based learning, like all of that. And that is in my mind, the, the way that all of our schools should be operating and not just the, a small group of students who are overage and undercredited. Now that sounds, that sounds appealing to write, like you said, all of our students, not just overaged and undercredited. Um, but if I had, if I was a parent and I was worried about my student, who was over age and undercredited? How could I get my child in a program like that, where you know you're being very innovative, so to speak, with um, their students' education? So right now we have these programs operating at Hartford Public High School and Buckley High School. Yeah. Um, so first, a parent would need to have his or her child in one of those schools. In one of those schools. Okay. Um, you know, we do. We would love to expand the programs. Um, you know, there's a I think there's a need across the district, not just in our comprehensive high schools, but in our magnet schools. And, and I've spoken to principals who say, I have the student who I really think could benefit from a different right. high school experience. How can I get them into the personalized pathway at Hartford Public, for example? And the answer at this point is, well, if they're not a Hartford High student, you can't get them into that pathway. Um, but I, I do think that there's a lot of exciting work that's happening in those pathways. And it is the work that energizes me the most um, because it really, we really have redefined what the traditional school day looks like there. That's awesome. What's the most um, difficult part or challenging part of your role? The data I have to look at. And I love data, mm -hmm. but when the data isn't good um, and you know, like anecdotally, you've got these great stories to tell and you have teachers reporting these breakthroughs happening. And then you look at the quantitative data and it's just not where you want it to be. Um, that's always that's always difficult. I can imagine. Um, 
I didn't think of that as a um, as an answer. Uh, so I'm gonna switch up a little bit. In some of the work that you do, you know, we talked a lot about equity, right? There's two books that our our district has committed to um, this year. One is so you uh, want to talk about race, and the other one is how to not be an anti-racist or how to be an anti-racist. Sorry, those are two um, books that we've taken on as a district for our staff to be um, involved in. What's your take on what's in those books and how it relates to the work that you do every day? Well, I, I've been, I remember writing my law school essay mm-hmm. on educational equity. Um, and this was back in 2005 or 2006. Um, and I, I think at that time, the term was around, but it, it wasn't nearly as, um, as like well-known as a concept as it is today. Um, so at that point, we were talking a lot about achievement gaps, and now we're talking a lot about equity. And I think soon we'll be talking about like anti-marginalization. And the, the concepts all are super important because I think particularly working in an urban district, we, we have to recognize and come to terms with the historical legacy of racism in this country and the systems of oppression that have been built up over the course of hundreds of years um, and that have real impacts on the experiences our students have today. And in the absence of that, um, like realization and willingness to, to confront what oftentimes is difficult for us to confront yep. um, as persons of uh, either persons of color or people who are white coming into this profession, those who have privilege or those who don't. I mean, whatever your background is, we all have baggage that we bring to us. We all have the life experiences that inform the work that we do. And we, we have to take stock of that and recognize that that does impact who we, who we show up as, um, as teachers, as administrators, as staff, working with students who are highly impressionable and look to us for guidance and direction. Okay. Um, so what's your take on that work personally? Is, has there been any connection personally with you? And, and, you know, we can't see you, but we can hear you, right? And there's going to be a picture that goes with the podcast. Justin is a white male. Does any of that affect you personally as you work with students in an urban area? Uh, so, you know, I've had conversations with kids over the years um, yeah. where ideas of having black male teachers in particular, that wasn't an experience many of my students had. Um, and so they, they could oftentimes count the number of black male teachers they had on one hand and, and they wouldn't need all of their fingers. And I asked them, like, what's the impact of, of that? What is the impact of your teachers not reflecting the diversity of this classroom? I think some of them recognize that this, this does have an impact on them. Um, and then others said, it actually doesn't matter to me. It matters uh, who the person is and that person isn't defined by the color of their skin. Yeah. I do think that we as an organization owe a responsibility to our students to to more aggressively hire for diversity and make sure that the teaching staff reflects the, um, the student body. Having said that, I also think that for the most, maybe it was more difficult for my students to connect with me early on because I don't look like them. I might have had very different life experiences than them. Um, but once they recognized who I was as an individual and saw that like my heart was in the right place and I cared deeply about their success, I don't think the color of my skin impacted my ability to have an impact on them. But I do think that we owe it to our students to have a diverse teaching staff. And we need to do a lot more work in that area. 
All right. Thank you very much for being open and honest and candid with your answers um, surrounding that topic. You had an event last Tuesday for high school design. What was that event all about? So this was an opportunity for us to showcase the work that we've been doing over the course of the last 16 and 18 months um, in the Office of Academics, the Office of School Leadership, um, and across the three comprehensive high schools and at Kinsella. Um, it was a, a chance for us to say, hey, uh, all of these task forces that we had convened and all of this research and these site visits, it's materialized into something. It's having a real impact on the experience students are having in school. We wanted to share that with a number of stakeholders. Um, so we invited the members who were on those task forces. We invited members of the Board of Ed. We invited teachers and administrators and students, um, community partners. And we weren't holding this out as exemplars. These were examples of what practice looked like currently, acknowledging that we have a long way to go um, and also seeking advice and support from the community to help us get to where we wanna be. And so where is that? Where's the, where we wanna be? What's the end line for this work? I think we, we wanna create high schools that rival the quality of some of the best magnet schools in our district. We want those high schools to be comprehensive in nature. We want those schools to provide rigorous and compelling um, college and career exploration and experiences to students. We want them, those high schools to help students understand and have the knowledge, skills, and mindsets that they need to make informed choices about life beyond high school. You know, our, our, when I surveyed the eighth graders um, a couple years ago, well, the, the, the magnet, enroll, uh, the magnet uh, application data will tell you it's capital prep. The interest from the students will tell you it's SMSA or Prince Tech. So I think if you took what Capital Prep, SMSA, and Prince Tech was doing, I mean, those are the ones where the kids are talking about they really want to go to. At the end of the day, for your vision of what these great, awesome schools are going to be, do you have an end of day, I mean, an end of year kind of date for us? Is it 2022? Is it 2023? What in your vision, where do you see that happening at? Boom, we're here. Now, now we got the schools that rival these other schools. We, uh, I wish it were that easy, oh, but we, we, do, we, do have, we do have a three to five year implementation plan. Okay. Um, and this is year one of implementation. So these core tenants that I keep alluding to, which are the non-negotiables of the freshman academy and the non-negotiables of the career pathways, um, we, we hope that within five years, all of these non-negotiables will be in place with fidelity at each of our comprehensive high schools and Kinsella. So if we are looking for an exact date, add four years to today, and, and that's where we should be. Okay, good answer. Good answer, good answer. We'll wrap this, um, we'll wrap this session up, but we always ask um, our guest that comes on to provide us with something that we should be watching on TV or something um, to read. So last good thing you read. It's not last good thing I read, but book that I always return to is um, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness. That is a book that everyone should read, whether you're involved in education or not. 
Um, it is a book that I put in front of students in my contemporary law class, parts of it. And it is a compelling read. And again, kind of goes back to the systemic oppression that I was talking to earlier. And you're not going to go back and be a lawyer at all. You know, Tyrone, I don't, I don't never say never, right? But I don't, I don't think so. Um, part of me finds the courtroom potentially appealing, but I, I do like education. That's where I plan to stay for a while. Okay. All right. Give us, first of all, say the name of the book again. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, the new Jim Crow yep. mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. Got you. And that was, that was probably written in the nineties, maybe, or two thousands. No, it was in two thousands, like okay. probably 2010s somewhere. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Interesting read. Okay. I got to check that out. Give us something to watch. Well, I was going to say Schitt's Creek, and I've heard that the superintendent said Schitt's Creek. I, I think I'm actually going to still stick with Schitt's Creek because it's my, I don't really binge watch Netflix, but it's probably the show that I was closest to binge watching on Netflix. It's absolutely brilliant and hilarious and everyone should watch it. Okay. And she said so. She actually went into a little bit of why she thought, you know, it was such a, such a good watch. Why would you say it's, Schitt's Creek is such a good watch? Um, I, well, so it's funny and it's real and it's authentic and yeah. um, it's brilliantly written and it's character driven. And then more importantly, I'm so obsessed with Schitt's Creek that when I got a new car, I named my car Moira after one of the characters in Schitt's Creek. Really? We all yeah. got to name our car. Yes, yes. Everyone has to have a name for their car, right? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. My, my car's name is Bruce Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely name your car. So Mo <laughs> Maury, is it Maury? No, Moira, Moira. Moira, Moira. Tyrone, you have to watch Shit's Creek. You know, I'm going to keep it real. I, I, I tried to watch two, me and my wife, because they're not long. They're not long episodes. No, 23 minutes. Right. And so we watched probably the first two, and it was just a little bit, I, I like Eugene Levy too, right? but it's just, a, it's just a little, you know, weird <laughs> for me to get into. Maybe I'll, I'll try to um, jump back on it, especially after people share what they like. Um, so maybe that's two now that, no, I think this is the third person that says Shit's Creek. So we'll take that and, and we'll look into that. All right. Good. All right. Well, listen, Justin, we, um, it's been great having you on Justin Taylor for Harper, from Harper Public Schools. He is our assistant director of educational initiatives and innovation. I will never forget that again. Appreciate um, it. Everyone. Yeah. Thank you very <laughs> much for coming on. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks. Until next time you can catch us on 89.9. QFM in Harper. We are also streaming on the WQTQFM website and available on your CastBox podcast platforms and on Harper Public Schools website. Signing off, this has been Let's Talk Harper Public Schools and I am Tyrone Richardson. Make sure you hit subscribe and turn on your notifications so you know when the next episode is available.